think again. For my entire life, the word Iraq has been synonymous with war. It's like every time I hear the word, it signals a series of disturbing and gruesome images. Rockets launching towards a target outside its borders. And rockets landing with devastating force inside them. Bombs blowing up buildings. Machine gun fire traded in broad daylight until it's spotted by a combat helicopter or drone flying overhead. Which then goes on to drop more bombs. Since coalition forces invaded the country, the images have multiplied, and they seem to have become more graphic, more grotesque, more senseless. Who can forget the shocking image of four Blackwater service contractors? being torn from their tiny Mitsubishi soccer mom SUVs by an Iraqi mob, violently killed and strung from a bridge, all to the soundtrack of cheers and phony, blasphemous praise. But the most inescapable image is that of the innocent Iraqi men, women, and children shouting to the same God in despair The prayer is a simple one, a prayer for peace, and a prayer to restore the country to the greatness that it's been its hallmark for most of its history. Because Iraq has not always been a nation where people struggle to survive. In fact, for over 10,000 years, it established itself as quite the opposite. It was the cradle of civilization, a land marked by some of the greatest advances in human history. Iraq once occupied the majority of Mesopotamia, the land between two rivers. It was there that its citizens pioneered some of the greatest inventions in all of human history. How significant? Well, let's start with the wheel, the greatest game changer in the Invention Hall of Fame. But that's only the beginning. They then invented the plow, the two-wheel cart, and the first chariot. The Sumerians who lived in southern Iraq learned to channel the flooding of the Tigris and Euphrates to water and fertilize their fields, creating the first irrigation system, and also giving them the ability to plant the first cereal crops. The first ships set seal from Iraqi shores more than 3,000 years ago on the Tigris and Euphrates. But their contributions were not limited to building new innovations from wood, water, or earth. The greatest contributions involve their mind. Iraq's ancestors gifted us with advancements in writing, medicine, and mathematics. It's not an exaggeration to say they changed the way we think and feel. But their most important contribution changed the way we treat each other. The most tragic irony of our day is to watch Iraq descend into chaos and lawlessness. For it was Iraq that gave the world the most universal concept in justice, innocent until proven guilty. Since 1754 BC, it was the sole law of the land for all of the ancient Near East. It is also part of the oldest set of laws committed to writing. It is known as the Code of Hammurabi. This code was proclaimed by King Hammurabi of Babylon 
who united the kingdoms of southern Mesopotamia. The 282 edicts are chiseled into an imposing monument that stands over seven feet tall. The monument itself was carved from a single four-ton slab of solid black stone. The code contains some of the earliest examples of the doctrine of Lex Talonis, better known by the English expression, an eye for an eye. The code is one of the earliest references to the cornerstone of the American judicial system, the presumption of innocence. In fact, the Code of Hammurabi considered the concept of innocent until proven guilty so critical that false accusations carried the penalty of death. This is how it reads. If anyone brings an accusation of any crime before the elders and does not prove what he has charged, he shall, if it be a capital offense charged, be put to death. Hammurabi's contributions are so valued by the American judicial system that he is honored not once, but twice in our nation's capital. He is one of the 23 lawgivers featured in a sculpture in the chamber of the U.S. House of Representatives. He holds an even higher place of honor at the United States Supreme Court. A carving representing the 18 greatest lawgivers in human history keeps a watchful eye on the nine Supreme Court justices seated below them at the mahogany bench. On the south wall, a larger-than-life carving of Hammurabi, immortalized in ivory-colored Spanish marble, keeps a constant vigil alongside other famous lawgivers like Moses and Solomon. That is how influential and essential the Code of Hammurabi is considered in American law. Less than one mile away from Hammurabi's likeness in the Supreme Court building, Judge Ricardo Urbina sits in his chambers at the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. It's New Year's Eve, 2009. A trial is set to begin in just one month for four military contractors accused of killing and wounding Iraqi civilians in Nusr Square in Baghdad. It's been two years since the investigation began into the conduct of Dustin Hurd, Evan Liberty, Paul Slough, and Nick Slatton. But Judge Urbina is troubled by something about the case, and he won't wait another month to set it straight. Urbina knows D.C. well. He was a brilliant student, attending Georgetown University as an undergrad and also for law school. He started his legal career in 1970 as a public defender in Washington, D.C. Then, in March 1994, President Bill Clinton nominated him to a seat on the D.C. District Court. The Senate confirmed him less than three months later. By all accounts, Judge Urbina has enjoyed a distinguished career in the two decades on the bench. And recently, his position has required him to decide on issues directly related to the United States' war on terror. Just a year before the Raven 2-3 case, Judge Urbina rendered a decision about 17 Chinese Muslims who were detained in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba for more than seven years as suspected terrorists. 
The U.S. Justice Department called the 17 prisoners a security risk and wanted them held in Guantanamo indefinitely. Despite pressure from the Bush administration and its attorneys, Judge Urbina looked to Hammurabi and the U.S. Constitution to inform his decision, not politics. Urbina ordered their release by that Friday. The DOJ objected vociferously and demanded that the Uyghurs remain imprisoned pending an appeal. Urbina denied the motion. They've waited long enough, he said. The ruling went directly against the Bush White House, but it brought down the House, so to speak, in Urbina's court. Human rights advocates and Uyghurs, an ethnic minority in China, stood and cheered. But then the prosecutor, John O'Quinn, made a curious argument, one that is bone-chilling in light of what later happened to Raven 2-3. The court should be circumspect because of the potential for interference with foreign relations. Sabin Willett, an attorney representing the Uyghurs, countered. I've never heard anyone argue that our relations with other nations are a basis for holding someone. Just one year later, Judge Urbina is about to render his opinion on another case involving the war on terror. And once again, he was not going to allow the media, political popularity, or international relations inform his decision. The Constitution was his North Star, and Hammurabi's presumption of innocence, his guiding light. This is Raven 2-3, Presumption of Guilt. I'm Gina Keating, and I'm here with Michael Flaherty, who wrote that inspired prose we just heard. It's been a little over two years since September 16, 2007. Let's catch up with Dustin Hurd, Evan Liberty, Paul Slough, and Nick Slatton, and what they've been doing since they gave their initial statements about the shootings in Nassar Square. The first thing all of them did when the news accounts started to appear was call their families. Here's Dustin Hurd's dad, Stacy, talking about the first time he heard the name Nassar Square. He said, you may see some press stuff on this, but anyhow, I will, I'll let you know I'm good. And so, you know, I thought, well, okay. It's all right. We'll, we'll, we can manage through this. And so I didn't really think much about it. Then all of a sudden, I start seeing this, uh, oh, a few weeks later or something like that. Might have even been a week later. Anyhow, that there's supposedly this massacre. And I was like, what? That's not even close. Can't be. That was my thought. The news reports made it sound pretty alarming, but Paul Slough let his wife Kristen know that the incident was no different than the escalating attacks they had been experiencing for months. Yeah, you know, one of the more extraordinary things about this whole situation is that when my husband and I talked later after it happened, he told me, you know, Kristen, this the actual event itself was kind of like a normal day at the office, and it's the response to that is what happened because it was a textbook attack, primary attack on a, you know, a diplomat or somebody overseas, and then a secondary attack with a potential car bomb and small arms fire on the first responders. 
But the media coverage was pervasive and negative enough that friends started questioning the Raven 2-3 families. Paul Slough's mom, Vivian West, remembers the first time she sat down with Paul after hearing about the shooting. I remember sitting down with PJ and talking to him about it. And I told him, you know, I have no earthly idea what a war zone is or what you went through. But I remember saying, son, I need to know. And he looked at me and said, uh, Mom, as I stand before my maker, I can honestly say it will be with a clear conscience because I did nothing wrong. I did what I had to do to save myself and my crew. And I would not hesitate to do it again because I did what I was trained to do. And that's all I ever needed to hear. Some friends even tried to protect the families from the spiral of negative media coverage. Here's Deb Liberty, Evan's mom, talking about how the news was received in their hometown of Rochester, New Hampshire. I was at work. I worked in a restaurant. Luckily, I wasn't. I must have been busy that day. I wasn't really paying attention because, of course, restaurants have TVs, and my coworkers saw something about it on TV, and I didn't even notice that they had shut off all the TVs, so I went to see it. I didn't know anything about it until later that afternoon when Brian called me and said that there was an incident, but Evan was okay. You know, he didn't know much about it. So I didn't realize how severe that was at that time. They didn't know it yet, but those news outlets with their lazy reporting were helping the DOJ solidify a fable that turned out to be easy to spread. It played into all the stereotypes and prejudices that had grown up around the Iraq War, especially in an election year. The Iraq War was an expensive mistake. Military contractors were out of control, gun-toting racists. The only reason we weren't winning Iraqi hearts and minds was Eric Prince and the other war profiteers. I know. These are beliefs I also held very strongly. And the failure by me and my colleagues in the media to examine our prejudices helped the lie that the DOJ was pushing take root. Within weeks, Dustin Hurd, Evan Liberty, Paul Slough, and Nick Slatton came home from Iraq with no clear plan for what came next. Evan Liberty's version of this quandary is pretty much the same as his three comrades. What to do when your life is in a government-ordered holding pattern. November of 2007, I came back to the United States and visited my family in New Hampshire. Really, I assumed that the investigation would 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 take place and I would be able to go back to work. So when I met with uh, my lawyer, William Cofield, I talked to him and he said that um, it was likely to be a major investigation and be and drag on for a long time, so I was kind of disappointed that I wasn't going to be able to go back to work. I, I had assumed that uh, I would be cleared and go back to work within a matter of months. The, the thing that stuck out to me was all the media attention right after it happened. But I, like I said, I assumed that it would 
everything would be cleared up within a, a matter of weeks to maybe a month or two months, maybe at the most. There was no doubt that there was incoming fire, so I assumed that would come to light and we would all be cleared to be able to go back to work as soon as possible. Weeks turned into months. Months turned into years. And the men were no closer to a resolution. Evan moved to South America to be with his fiancée, Paula, and started taking online college courses. Paul took a job as a welder back in Texas. He and Kristen decided to start their family. They had a daughter, Lily, as an act of hope and faith. I went to work for uh, a feedlot for a good friend of mine out of uh, Seymour. His name is Rick Wells, great guy. Uh, started taking care of cows and was horseback all day, so that was perfect for me. And then we began just building a family. Nick Slatton was not so sure there was going to be a happy ending. Nick always had an uncanny sixth sense. It served him well on the battlefield. It saved his life. It saved other men's life. This time, it was giving him an uneasy feeling. He saw the fallout that his former boss, Eric Prince, was facing in Washington, D.C. Nick realized, even at age 24, that the criminal case against them was about much more than a gun battle in a war zone in Baghdad. Yeah, I expected to go back to work. Um, they were paying me disability while I was at home. And I just did a lot of training, did a lot of jiu-jitsu, did a lot of firearms training. And then I started to uh, get kind of dark because I realized that I was never going to go back to work. So I started uh, getting uh, problems with my anxiety and depression and stuff. And my friends said that I was messed up and they, the doctors prescribed me uh, Xanax. And I ate a lot of Xanax and I drank a lot. I self-medicated a lot. Kind of went into a really bad place in my life. Dustin Hurd stayed on with Blackwater in Baghdad until Thanksgiving of 2007. He had broken his back and was suffering from chronic pain from a number of other injuries he suffered in the Marines and Blackwater. He had surgery on his back and while recovering, bought a bass boat. He began fishing in tournaments. You know, I wasn't living right. I was living like every day could be my last and psychologically that's a hard thing to live with and so you know I fished when I wanted to fish I stayed with the family when I wanted to stay with the family and I you know lived every day it was like my last day which is a good thing when you can do that but it's also hard on your family and your friends because of the psychological issues that I was dealing with from war not to mention the stress and the psychological issues that comes when you're facing a case like what I've got. Life just stopped for these men and their families for two long years. The stress was becoming unbearable, mentally and financially. The evidence collected by the government over these two years only proved what the men of Raven 23 said from the beginning. But instead of backing off, federal prosecutors ratcheted up the pressure in hopes of forcing a quick plea deal. It was becoming blindingly obvious that this case was about more than a gun battle in a war zone half a world away. 
As things fell apart in Iraq, under both the Bush and Obama administrations, the Raven 2-3 case took on greater symbolic and political significance. What can you tell us about that, Mike? As the men of Raven 23 tried to get a handle on their uncertain futures, the U.S. government was trying to assure that its ill-planned occupation of Iraq would even have a future. The Bush administration, having stemmed the worst of the violence, now turned to its Status of Forces Agreement that allowed U.S. forces to remain in the country, subject to U.S. laws. The new Iraqi government, now well infiltrated by Iranian militia, seized on the Nisor Square shootings. It gave them the perfect reason to demand that U.S. personnel be subject to Sharia law, or leave. Entefad Kambar, the head of the Iraqi National Congress, an advisor to the Bush administration, explains how the negotiations did nothing to endear the Americans to the Iraqi people. We lock, we before, days before, weeks before the war, we lo- I lobbied the Congress here in Washington, trying to convince the Congress to make an interim government. I said, guys, make an interim government of 100 seats, leave 70, leave 80 empty for inter- insiders, and put 20 from the outsiders. That will help you when you go inside Iraq to put the Iraqi flag on liberated places, not American flag. So, and they refused, completely refused. Uh, let me tell you this conversation. I, I witnessed this conversation. We were, they were, te- we were telling Rumsfeld in Baghdad, let's have a status of forces agreement to protect U.S. forces in Iraq from liabilities, from crimes, from mistakes. You know what he said? You know what was his answer? And I like Rumsfeld, by the way. He's a good man. He said, my status of force of forces agreement is three words. We do whatever we want. Raven 2-3 is a production of Think Again Studios. It's written by Gina Keating and Mike Flaherty. Our producers are Ashton Smith, Gina Keating, and Mike Flaherty. Executive producers are Chai Ling, Lindsay Fellows, and Valerie McGowan. Mitchell Weinbaum and Jonathan Compton edited this episode. Mitchell also serves as our associate producer along with Kyle Hartford and Tina Graff. Our actors are Kevin Miller, Kurt Brinkman, Elizabeth Benz, Paul Keegan, and Jaden Marquez. Lindsay Fellows and Aaron Fullen supervise the music. Our theme song is performed by Chloe Caroline. Thanks to Anne and Neil Corkery for their kindness and generosity. Finally, we owe a debt to our men and women in uniform. Thank you for defending our freedoms so that strangers may one day enjoy them as well. For more information about this podcast, go to thinkagain.me. There you can find additional research and primary resources regarding the case of Raven 23. 
You can learn about future episodes and receive updates as events continue to evolve. You can also learn more about our future projects, as well as award-winning films, music, and books created by our team. Thanks to everyone who donated so much of your time and talent to this passion project. Dragon in a southern charm, they fall into your ex-arms.